Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki, and it's my pleasure to be introducing you to our talented robotics and AI community in Australia. And today I have a very, very special guest, Dr. Ramona V. Gerasa. Ramona is a senior lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, and she is the Juris Doctor um, Program Head. Ramona is the Chief Investigator behind the Gender Legislative Index, a tool designed to promote the enactment of legislation that works more effectively to promote women's lives. Her work innovatively combines law, engineering and data science to reinvigorate decades-long debates about the law's roles in addressing gender inequality. She is the winner of Women in AI Law and the second runner up of the Women Innovator of the Year. So Ramona, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Nikki. It's a pleasure to be here. You've got a phenomenal bio. I've shortened that to our listeners. Um, you will see in the show notes, it goes on longer than that. But um, I've looked at, I'm like this little meerkat that runs over everyone's LinkedIn profiles. If you saw one, that's me checking you out. You've had a really phenomenal career to date. Can you tell us a little bit about it and the highlights? Sure, Nikki. Thank you. Um, I suppose I consider myself a, a lifelong advocate of gender equality. As you would have seen from my bio, I've lived, studied and worked all around the world and I feel very privileged to have had that journey. Um, I suppose if we go back to the beginning as the daughter of migrant parents who moved to Australia in the mid-1970s, I've always been raised to be conscious of the needs of those around me or of, of those who have less. I also always wanted to be a lawyer since a really young age, but it was probably only later in life that I realised I could pursue a career as a lawyer in human rights. And one of my first legal jobs in human rights was as an intern at the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women in Manila. And since then, I've worked for local and international NGOs and organisations in Accra, in Sydney, Brussels, Managua, Madrid, Kiev, New York and Hanoi. So it's been a really global journey. The shift into the AI space for me, however, was certainly less planned, definitely unexpected. Since my work in the early 2000s, you know, at the very beginning of my career, I've had no direct contact with technology from a legal perspective. So I am surprised, pleasantly surprised, certainly unexpected to see my research today sit at this core intersection between gender equality, law and technology. As you mentioned, however, you know, I've received a prize for women in AI. And probably in my case, I think it's better described as a woman for artificial intelligence or a woman with artificial intelligence. You know, I really focus on redressing gender inequality and I'm keen to explore what there is out there among the tools that we, we have that can be used by policymakers for advancing gender equality. And that's how I came to explore this use of AI and law. And I think, you know, it's really exciting potential in this women's rights and tech space. You know, a while ago, when I was heading the women's rights work for ActionAid International, ActionAid is a fairly big international NGO that works on addressing poverty from the ground up and has always had a very strong focus on gender equality. One of our main projects was on urban poverty and how urban poverty particularly affects women. In that context, we realised that there was a lot of technology already available in mobile phones that could empower women, from marking on a map 
of a city where lighting was bad to becoming a tool to help women mobilise, you know, for example, as street vendors to make claims to demand change from public authorities, effectively the government. And we did a lot of research in the space around urban violence and the apps that were being developed. And I think those apps were really interesting because they created a lot of opportunities for women to mobilise and make claims for their cities to be safer, but it also raised risks for women around safety and privacy and security. And these were some really vibrant discussions around 2010, including at the United Nations level that I was involved with around using tech-based tools to redress inequality in urban spaces. So, you know, I think my work in this field is really driven by the what for, how to exploit this incredible potential when law and technology come together for a really specific purpose, in this case, advancing women's interests. So then if you fast forward all the way to 2017, after a decade working in civil society and for international organisations, I moved back to academia. And I really do think the University of Technology Sydney is an institution that's genuinely trying to give meaning to the technology in its name. But it also is an institution that has social justice as core to its vision. And yet, you know, law and technology are not natural bedfellows. You know, there are quite a few lawyers in this space who work on the law of technology, so regulating technology's use, but not necessarily using technology to improve the law or advance social justice. And so one of the reasons I joined UTS was a desire to do the kind of research that could make a genuine dent in the problem of gender inequality and using the law to do this. But I definitely didn't expect to have the opportunity to work alongside software engineers and data scientists for a social justice cause. So it's been a really exciting journey. It's quite interesting, you know, um, if you think about lawyers and the work that you would do and AI now going patrolling through case, um, case studies and um, I think that's already where it's impacting the law um, fraternity that you don't need all these young newly graduated law students sitting there trolling through thousands of case study that AI can do this for you but it's an interesting um, it's an interesting development in the space because of course it's just going to get more prevalent um, and I think more lawyers I think when they're graduating now AI and technology must be one of the subjects that must be taught at university because the two just are going hand in hand. Well, I 100% agree with you. I actually teach first year students ethics, law and justice. And we have this conversation around how technology is shaping the law. And I think it's important for lawyers not to be fearful of what technology means in terms of their jobs and job opportunities. As you say, it can massively reduce some of the more mundane aspects aspects of legal careers, but I think the Gender Legislative Index is the kind of tool that shows that it, it, technology and the law together brings a lot of potential that's been, until now, I think, inadequately explored. So talking of the Gender Legislative Index, you're the chief investigator behind us. Tell us a little bit about this work. Sure, Nikki. Well, you know, I started my research on making laws more responsive to women's rights quite a few years ago, and I got to the point where I realised my legal and policy knowledge just wasn't enough. You know, I could identify problems with legislation and I could see how it was failing to make women's lives better or take women to account in the first place when drafters put pen to paper. But I needed to bring in other collaborators to find a better solution. And this is where the faculty came in and gave me seed funding, which is what led to the first prototype of the Gender Legislative Index, which is basically a tool designed by me as a lawyer that engages software engineering and data scientists in what I think is a world first. 
So basically the GLI is an interface that use, is used to measure how effectively a domestic law responds to women's particular needs and interests. And it's grounded in international women's rights, but it has the capacity to evaluate any provision of a domestic law and is powered by this mix of human evaluators and machine learning to tell us you know, whether a law is a good law or a bad law in terms of advancing gender equality. So, you know, if we take a step back, there is growing knowledge around the world about the fact that many countries have discriminatory laws or laws that may seemingly be neutral, but are in fact not advancing the most excluded and marginalised women in a community. And so, for example, the World Bank has invested a lot through its Women, Business and the Law Project. And those kind of databases, like the one created by the World Bank, they do a really good job at ranking countries and showing which countries need to do better. But where I think those databases are a little more limited is in helping countries by pointing to the right direction with good practice laws. And I think this is where I hope the GLI is filling a gap. So I can take you step by step first through how the GLI evaluates a law. Second, what's the AI component? And third, you know, possibly most importantly, what can we do with it? Mm-hmm. So the GLI starting point is a human evaluation of the gender responsiveness of individual laws. So seven questions are answered by human evaluators and they give a response on a scale according to certain benchmarks from international law. Some of your listeners might've heard of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which is one of the places where I get these benchmarks. But the laws themselves come from really distinct fields of law. So gender-based violence, family law, taxation, mining regulation, financial services. So once the human evaluators answer these seven questions, they give an overall assessment of a law. They'll place the law on a scale from a complete disregard for international standards on one end or meeting international standards on the other. But then I was faced with this challenge of wanting to provide a final score, like a headline story. This law is good or this law is bad, especially when evaluators disagree. So obviously you can imagine getting a group of legal experts to agree on something is is not that easy to do. (laughs) So I considered a lot of different aggregation methods, but none were really methodologically sound. And I didn't have a previously tested approach. So I began working with a data analyst at the UTS Connected Intelligence Centre. And this is a fabulous centre here at UTS that has data analysts and data visualisation experts doing really creative work in this space. So we revisited the problem from an unexplored data-driven and data science angle, which, as you can imagine, was a bit of an exercise in in meeting of the minds of two very distinct people, you know, a lawyer and a data scientist who day to day speak fairly different languages in our work. But we reached two solutions. And the first one was data visualisation to show levels of human agreement and disagreement because we didn't want to hide all of that important data. So we introduced heat maps to show the extent of agreement among the different human evaluators about particular provisions of the law. We also developed layers of information in the gender legislative index web accessible version so that people who need more information can go deeper. So an academic or a policymaker can see what provisions over which there was more agreement and where there was less agreement and importantly why. All that data, all of those reasons sit in the GLI and are made public. But I think what probably sets the GLI apart in terms of global indices is that the GLI algorithm we used developed, um, we developed, used a machine learning approach that was aimed at paralleling human reasoning. So really the GLI operates as a series of ordered logical decisions 
based on all of those evaluations in response to the seven questions that flow to a final classification. So we decided to use a decision tree model. And I think that machine learning component tries to remove some of the bias that humans bring when we evaluate a law. So with the machine learning algorithm, different laws from different sectors, from different countries become more comparable because the GLI algorithm has been trained on a subset of data, irrespective of which country we're talking about, irrespective of which law, irrespective of which leader was in power at the time. So my goal is that the machine learning algorithm and having that drive the final evaluation brings a bit more integrity to the GLI. And I think this is also where the, the gender legislative index stands apart, because as you said, you know, this is a complex area for many lawyers. And a lot of the lawyers who work in the field of AI and technology are looking at the ethical implications of AI. And I think rightly so. I've just published an article in the Nordic Journal of Human Rights that precisely looks at the impact on women of some AI-driven technologies, like voice over IPs or government software that tries to use AI to predict how at risk a woman may be of repeat offending of domestic violence, or how women in particular are affected by deep fake technologies that create non-consensual pornographic photos and videos. So I think it's really important to say that the AI concerns are real and they're very real for women. Mm. But what I'm hoping to do with the Gender Legislative Index is to offer a different perspective to AI and see how AI and law can come together in a really promising way and with a lot of potential to advance women's rights and social justice. So I think there really are pros and cons on both sides. Listen, I think it's absolutely fantastic work and, and so necessary. Um, your evaluators, the lawyers looking at the work, um, what was the male-female ratio? Is there any difference in how they view? Did you find any difference in how they're interpreting the law? It's a really great question, Nikki. And when I go for scale-up, I will try to get greater gender diversity. I have an all-female um, evaluation team. The greatest differences are in age. So I have evaluators in the 20s and 30s and evaluators over 60. And I also have evaluators from different um, jurisdictions. So I have evaluators who've studied under a common law system, similar to Australia or New Zealand, Canada, and as well in the civil law practice, such as you would see in France or Spain. And I think the greatest difference, which is where you see some of the human bias in evaluating laws is around age. I think younger women have very particular perspectives in evaluating a law that differ from older women, but I haven't seen other differences yet, but I certainly would be intrigued to see how men and women evaluate the laws differently as well. Well, I think, you know, bias is, it's so ingrained in us, we don't even realise we've got biases until it's actually pulled up and you go, hey, listen, where's this reaction coming from? It could stem back five generations of something to happen to you and you've just got something in you. There's perceived biases because of your nationality. So because I'm South African, obviously I have to be X, Y, and Z just because of my nationality, which is absolute nonsense, of course. But, you know, people, it's a natural inclination of people to make assessments and judgments very quickly. Absolutely. And I think what's interesting with the Gender Legislative Index, in addition to some of those biases you mentioned, I talked about age and you talk about country of origin. I think evaluators also bring much more emotion as lawyers when evaluating a law in the field of gender-based violence or women's reproductive rights over a tax law or a financial services law. And I think that's why the machine learning algorithm is really exciting because it treats all those laws the same. So while we as humans will, will maybe be biased in our approach to a, a law in the field of gender-based violence, 
the data set has been trained to treat all the laws the same and hopefully it, it does go some way towards reducing some of that human bias in the final evaluation of the law. And I say this because a big part of my research is on the importance of bringing a gender perspective across every area of law. It's not enough just to have gender advocates in particular fields or think that only certain areas of law matter to women, like health or social services. When women's lives are affected across the full spectrum of laws, a tax law affects women, mining regulations affect women. And so part of the exercise is in broadening that lens so we begin to understand how are those laws affecting women? Are there benchmarks for systems like the Gender Legislative Index to use? And if there aren't, where can we get some from? Well, I was just reading an article or there was something on LinkedIn this morning about homeless women over the age of 50, which is on the rise and it's, it's prevalent in Australia, which is just absolutely astounding of a country of this wealth. And um, probably from that is a woman has got divorced um, or she was a, a, a carer at home the most of her life looking after kids, commonly known as a housewife. I call them CEOs of the family because these women work exceptionally hard and are generally not paid for their money. The relationship falls apart and there's no um, superannuation for the women. And then this leads to the next step is poverty. Um, I suppose, could you pick some of this up in there as well? Absolutely. And I think that you're, you raising superannuation is key because, again, I think this is an area where if we don't have women experts at the table informing the way tax laws are drafted or superannuation is looked at, then women, older women's interests are getting lost. And there is a cycle when women are not adequately compensated for when they leave the workforce to have children, when policies allow women to allow people to withdraw from their superannuation to invest in homes, that's going to have a greater impact on, on women who are more likely to have a lower super to start with. And on top of which, in Australia, like in the US, women are not paid super on their maternity leave. Mm. So you've got an aggravation of problems based on laws and policies at one end of a woman's life that then are exacerbating the, and creating the problem of homelessness among older women. It's a shocking, shocking problem. And I think it shows a cycle of gender inequality throughout women's lifetimes. You know, I read a tweet by a very high profile woman who said, you know, my biggest concern is that I'm going to end up living in a car over the age of 65. And I think if we don't treat the problem seriously now, we'll get to a stage where it is so widespread that it will be very hard to do anything but Band-Aid solutions later. And you have to ask yourself the question, why would you marginalise half of the population in any given country, especially Australia? It, it's just going to have an adverse effect on the whole population. It will. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting when you talk about marginalising it, because if women are excluded from certain fields, then women's voices are not necessarily represented. So I don't believe that every woman will be there to advocate for and represent the voice of all women. But if you look at legal drafting, if there are not enough women who are legal drafters, who are parliamentary counsel, who play that part in translating a policy concept into a law on paper, you risk having a law that is gender blind or seems to be gender neutral, but is in fact gender blind. Mm. These kind of laws that are that encourage women to be primary carers. Our paid parental leave scheme in Australia has that language, that mothers are primary carers. Now, who built that into the law? I have no idea, but someone decided it was a good idea to name women as primary carers in a paid parental leave scheme in Australia. And that leads to a cycle of inequality where women bear the primary burden of, of care rather than it being equally shared among both partners. 
And so for me, it's about women not being in certain spaces and their perspective and voices not being heard that's creating these problems around the law being so unequal and unrepresentative of women's specific interests and needs. It, it really underlines the point of how important the language is that you use in anything that you, you know, primary carer, either father or mother or mother or mother or, for, you know, whatever, primary carer, that's it. You can just you can just stop there. That's a sentence. Exactly. End of story. It's, it's a finished conversation. And yet it's not. And it is, it is complex, unwinding what is a cultural practice where, you know, 90% of primary carers are women. I mean, that's the, that is the, the state of play in Australia right now. And, it, and the law has a big part to play, but so does social and cultural change to really shift that kind of practice. Yes, I have to tell you, my husband took off um, uh, quite a few years to, to do his PhD and he was actually the, I was working and he was at home looking after the children and it was a real cultural um, shift A for him to get comfortable with. It took him a good six months just to get used to, look, I'm at home and I'm not doing what Nikki would normally be doing. And second to that, um, societal, people going, oh, like, you know, why aren't you working? Like, and he said, no, I'm looking after the kids and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm studying and, and that's what I'm doing. And I'm glad to see there are more men that it's acceptable now to take parental leave, um, maybe even be at home while the, the wife is actually the primary income bringer and they, they're second and they're raising kids and doing what women would typically be seen to be doing. 100% agree with you. And I can only begin to imagine some of the battles that some the men who choose to stay home as primary carers face, you know, because the cultural practices are so ingrained. Something as simple as calling it a mother's group instead of a parent's group, is going to inhibit men from turning up when they are choosing to be carers. I can't tell you the number of times my daughter's school calls me instead of my partner, even though he is named as the primary carer when there's an issue at school or an incident because it's just practice. And so I think there's a, we're a long way to go to change some of those practices. But I also strongly believe that law is very powerful in creating social change. And so if you have a paid parental leave scheme that talks about each partner having an equal portion of care to be taken and it's non-exchangeable across the partners, I think that goes a long way towards a more equal sharing of care. And we've seen that in a lot of the Nordic countries that have done this for many years. You know, Iceland is one of the leaders. So there's good practice globally for countries like Australia to learn from. And I think that these examples are actually put out there so that people know it's acceptable and it's been done and actually celebrate it and go, listen, this is this is how good parenting works. Both parents at it, both half share. Like it doesn't matter who's doing what, whether I'm mowing the lawn because that inevitably ended. I'm a great lawn mower and my husband is a great cook, you know, like that. That's And it was fine, but it's making it socially acceptable. Agreed. And, and, and it's a heavy burden on everyone who has to do that because you need to be role models. But yeah. even the research in Iceland has showed that there is a role model effect from fathers taking care on other fathers in the community. They've also shown that when fathers take care in the immediate months, take on the primary care role in the immediate months after a child is born, that that more equal sharing persists throughout the life of the child and the data at least up until the age of the child is three shows you know a continued effect of equal sharing in those early years of childhood which is so fundamental yeah and obviously the parents are stronger bonding with their kids which is just an absolute huge positive there's just no downside to this yeah. now your your um, index is this just based on or modeled on Australian law or is it uh, you can do it internationally 
Well, the standards used to benchmark the laws are international standards. So they come from international agreements. And there's a particular reason I did that. One of the main agreements that I've used to establish the seven questions that are asked of each law comes from the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Now, nearly every country in the world has signed up for it. So I'm not expecting legislation to do more than what governments have already committed to do. The Gender Legislative Index is a reminder to governments, you've committed to make laws work more effectively for women. These are the commitments you've made, and this is how your legislation isn't shaping up. So it's a global index with global standards, and so far, laws from Sri Lanka, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Australia have been evaluated. And I'm hoping that you know, in time, I get the resources to, to create a really global repository, and we can do some cross-regional comparisons as well. Where are the results of these um, studies that you've done? The, so the data is fully available in the Gender Legislative okay. Index. So everything's public, but I've got numerous articles where I've published some of this research. And I suppose the most exciting next development is that I've used the Gender Legislative Index to look at what laws are enacted when women are in power. And so that's the subject of my new book coming out um, with Oxford University Press, which will be released in July. That's very exciting. So is there a link that I can put into the show notes, Romana, for anyone interested in exploring this a bit further? Yeah, absolutely. So I can share the link to the Gender Legislative Index, genderlawindex.org. And I can also um, share the link to the new book, The Woman President, Leadership Law and Legacy for Women Based on Experiences from South and Southeast Asia, which is the book that I just mentioned. That's fantastic. And congratulations. I'm just listening to you and I'm going, where do you find the time to do all of the stuff that you do? Tell me who manages your day for you. <laughs> I have an incredible mental calendar, <laughs> mental calendar, Nikki. So um, I do keep myself busy. But uh... Well, listen, I'm truly honoured again then to speak to you because I know you're busy. Um, we've just had an Australian election. I think it's. Um, I, I think we can say the people have spoken. I don't want to get too much into politics, but um, a very strong female presence. How do you think this is going to shape up, and what does it mean for Australia? Look, I think you know. I will. I will get into politics, and I will say that I think it's a really exciting moment for us, and I do feel a sense of hope and newness that I know many people shared since the election last weekend. But I will take a step back, and I suppose this builds on my work on the woman president, which is all about a response to the fact that we have so few women world leaders. You know, women world leaders have never made up more than 15% of the world's presidents and prime ministers. And right now there are only 28 women presidents and prime ministers all around the world, which means if, a, if there's a meeting taking place right now about the war on Ukraine, there are at most 28 women at the table helping to inform global decisions and global policy making. And, you know, the advocate in me tells me that's not enough. Mm. But the woman president, my new book, is an academic study of the difference women leaders make when they're in power on the law and how those laws affect women. So I suppose it's with that sort of lens in mind that I do look back and think what a pity it is that at last weekend's election there wasn't a woman heading either the Labor or Liberal Party who was running as the potential second female Prime Minister of Australia. And I think that would have certainly changed the debate and we'd be having a pretty exciting conversation right now if, if that woman had won around the future shape of legislation and policy and gender-responsive budgeting um, in Australia. But with that in mind, I think we can't lose sight of the fact that, as you said, there's been a lot of women who've won. There are 18 women who will be joining the House of Representatives for the first time. And, you know, I think that's really exciting and that we're going to see, you know, a much greater diversity too among the women who are elected, which I think is also really exciting. You know, research is quite mixed. 
about what difference women legislators make in terms of whether they're actually able to bring up women's issues when they're at the table. Um, and even the role model effect is debated. But the research does show that when women legislators are at the table, they do tend to raise issues like education, health and safety and security in legislative debates. And I think we definitely want to see more of that in the Australian sort of policy landscape. So I think this could be a shift in the right direction. You know, just before the election, former Prime Minister Julia Gillard said that a win for Labor is a win for women. So I think we just want to put that claim to the test and see what this Labor government will do to deliver for a diversity of Australian women and a much broader spectrum of issues. And, and to ask, will we see some firsts in terms of gender responsive lawmaking and policymaking and budgeting? So I guess we watch this space. Definitely. And I mean, it's a good opportunity to wish these, uh, to wish them congratulations, the women that have been um, elected, but a, a dual message that take your responsibilities very seriously, like you're there for a reason and don't muck it up, because you've, there's a lot riding on these women. There is. And, you know, there's a lot of research that talks about the unfair onus, including my new book, The Woman President, that sits on the shoulder of women leaders. You know, there's a heavy burden. And I talk about this in one of the final chapters. It's like walking a tightrope where the woman president is juggling everything. You know, the kitchen sink, because she's supposed to still manage the household, all the politics of the day, but also the weight and expectations of the women's movement also on their shoulders. You know, women advocates expect women, legislators and women in power to do more for women. And, you know, I acknowledge that as a heavy onus, but I also say, yes, you've got an incredibly powerful position Please use it to do the most you can to advance the interests of women and hopefully to make Parliament a more equal and safe place to work so that more women are willing to also contest. To the women out there that even think they should be in the kitchen doing anything, my message to you is don't. Like, do your job and delegate the rest because that is what, that's what you need to do. Um, I, I listened to a video many years ago about the head of PepsiCo, I can't remember her name, but she was brilliant. Uh, I think it was Indira something, but, and they asked her, you know, like, how does she manage it? And she said, well, first up, she, she's got a formidable team around. And when her daughter finds the, the company, the head office, and they, it, it comes to her and it says, hello, can I speak to mommy? Um, they know it's her daughter and they must just put her through to her EA. And then um, when she gets to the EA and she wants to talk to her mommy, she says, well, she wants to play Xbox. And then the EA has got a set of questions. That, that there's a whole like yes no like no you can't if you've done it this yes you can and she said look basically when you're in this position you really have to have a strong team of people mm -hmm. around you supporting you absolutely it takes a team to move a mountain and it, it is fundamental you know these are phenomenal jobs that women have and I'm sure they have great women and men in their teams working with them to make that happen. Yeah, and if they haven't, get them because mm -hmm. you can't do it all on your own. So the very controversial Roe versus Wade case um, in USA is getting a lot of attention. Um, I think it, ha I'm not sure, has it been overturned already or it's about to be overturned? Well, it is, and now there's sort of a leaked decision and a lot of protests in the lead-up. Um, even the fact that the decision was leaked says a lot about how political and controversial this is. Um, you know, I lived in the US and I was a legal fellow at the Centre for Reproductive Rights in New York, which is a brilliant organisation advocating for women's rights to choose. And I was really deeply saddened when I heard this decision. I think, you know, if the US overturns Roe v. Wade, it's a real blight on the US as a nation. And it would leave 
the decision in the hands of states to decide whether or not they're going to allow women to access abortion. So already in the US, a lot of states have state-based laws that have tried to encroach on the rights that Roe v. Wade established years ago. And in my view, I think these are the kind of laws that really encroach on a particular demographic of women, women of low socioeconomic status. So imagine trying to access an abortion service for a woman working a casual job or doing shift work who's going to get trouble, have trouble getting leave, or a woman with a tight household budget. So a requirement to go visit a doctor twice and get two different certificates from two different doctors, that's an economic cost. That's a cost on a woman's working day or a requirement that a woman has to visit an abortion clinic a certain number of days apart. That's that's a massive burden on women. So it's a very particular group of women who are affected. And so if they now overturn Roe v. Wade, it's going to make those kinds of obstacles a nationwide problem. And I think it really will set the US back years after so much fighting um, and for these freedoms. And why now? Well, you know, under Trump, there were numerous Supreme Court appointments. So you have a decision in the hands of effectively here five judges. It's four men and one woman, mm-hmm. three of whom were appointed under the Trump administration who, who've decided to reverse this precedent. And, you know, some say, well, it puts the hands back into legislators and they can decide for the people, but it means countless women will be waiting in the meantime and be forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy and it, it has huge repercussions on those, on those women. And I think what's really interesting as someone who works internationally on and on international law a lot of countries look to the US and the US Supreme Court for their decision making you know Bangladesh Kenya the Philippines these are all countries with Supreme Courts that will look to the US for practice so the implications go beyond the US borders Um, so I think it's incredibly naive to see this as just a setback for the US it's a real Mm. global challenge for women yeah violence in Australia I'm sorry topics today so um if this is upsetting you in any way um you know our apologies but it, it's certainly stuff that's going on in the world and we need to talk about it um our domestic violence in australia i think the figures are one woman a week is killed at, um, in australia at the hands of an abusive partner um I th- to me it's a little bit shocking how little is said about this and how little it is highlighted in the media what are your thoughts on this I think it is, you know, it's a really difficult situation it's in, in, in terms of the way in which media coverage is done. So there's certain headline cases that get a lot of media coverage. And on the one hand, we think, well, that's, it's great that the coverage is there to bring visibility to the problem and to force further inquiries into the issue. But it also raises a bigger question, which is how many women are suffering from violence whose stories aren't being told and aren't being captured by those, that data and that statistic. So I think this is a huge, huge problem there are an incredibly large number of women who are dying at the hands of their partners every year. And it is a really difficult issue to discuss. Um, You know, for some of the audience here, they might be particularly interested in the tech side of this issue. You know, there is software um, that is allowing governments to use sorts of artificial intelligence to predict how at risk a woman is of being um, at suffering violence at the hands of a repeat offender. So it uses the profile of past offenders and the profile of an offender to decide that a woman's a woman's at greater risk that that offender will re-offend. And it's particularly been rolled out in Spain and it's the subject of this article that I published in the Nordic Journal of um, Human Rights with a co-author from the University of Sydney. And there's a real challenge with this software because it does predict more successfully re-offending than using 
traditional statistics, but at the same time, AI models get it wrong. And for an issue like domestic violence, you just don't want a model that's going to get it wrong. Because what about that one woman whom the AI model says, well, no, this woman isn't at risk, and it turns out she is. And there was a case of a woman where they used the traditional statistics model, which predicted that she wasn't at risk, and there was a reoffence, and she was murdered at the hands of her partner, and the government paid compensation to her family. So I think it's a really interesting and challenging space for how to use technology to do more at an accelerated pace to protect a greater number of women, but while acknowledging that there'll still be risks and, you know, how does society handle those risks when it comes to such a grave issue like domestic violence? Yeah, I think Queensland just passed the law of coercive control um, and what it defines and and whether you um, fall in that category with um, that awful um, tragedy with the mom and three kids that were killed. They haven't. I think, you know, with coercive control, it is an opportunity to expand how we understand domestic violence differently from the traditional understanding of domestic violence, but it also needs to be accompanied by a lot of training of all the service providers involved in the system. Mm -hmm. So for police, police desks, psychologists involved to understand that violence may not be as explicit or evident in the traditional ways that we know and so, you know, Queensland is, it le- has learnt a lot from other jurisdictions, including, I believe, in Scotland, where they've also introduced the coercive control legislation. So hopefully this goes some way to capturing a lot of the experiences women suffer of violence that is very different from our traditional understandings of domestic violence. Yeah. We're going to turn to something very positive now, and that is your award and the awards evening. Now, I've asked this of all my, um, my the winners that I've interviewed. Did you nominate yourself or did someone nominate you? I nominated myself. Oh, well done. I'm so glad to hear this because <laughs> um, we were debating about, uh, you know, the women being um, a little bit shy and coming forward and to showcase their work and they think they're not good enough and all these reasons why women don't do things. Um, how did you find the, the, the nomination process? I thought the nomination process was really rigorous and I liked its rigour. You know, you re- I really had to think through why I thought I was a good candidate and what was special about what I'd created with the Gender Legislative Index and what receiving the award could mean for advancing social justice in this space. So I thought the nomination process was really rigorous in that sense. The Being a, a finalist in it of itself was an honour. I mean, you were there, Nikki, but yes. the awards event was wonderful. It was so great to have so many women celebrated on the evening and such a warm space of solidarity among women working in such diverse sectors and industries. So I thought it was brilliant and I feel very honoured to have been nominated on the day. Listen, again, congratulations. Um, Jeannie Marie Patterson, who you know um, from the University of Melbourne, she's been a previous guest of mine. Um, She was also nominated on the evening. I I think... um, one of my, uh, the ladies that I spoke to said this whole nomination process has highlighted to her what she's done and maybe some areas that she could improve because, as you said, it's rigorous. And for any women thinking of doing this next year, um, we encourage you, we support you, but it's not, it's not just a quick 10-minute exercise, this. No, definitely not. You know, and I think what's interesting when you mentioned that women so rarely put their hands up, and I've heard this, and the research shows that women put their hands up rarely for 
new jobs, for promotion, for awards, for grants. And I suppose what's wonderful is this is an award for women. So we know it's women who are putting their hands up and, and I'm, I'm glad that I did and I, I would certainly encourage many others to put themselves out there and apply next year. And I think my key advice is that you need to tell your story. You know, it is a personal experience. Why does AI matter to you and what's been your journey into AI? And I've had a really rewarding one, a very unusual one, and I was able to tell that story. And I think that's what's key to the application process. I definitely think it's really essential to have more women in tech and AI. And I think the prize is a reminder of that. And I'm sure listeners are aware, but the Stanford Institute for Human-Centred Artificial Intelligence puts out its AI index every year and it's a massive compendium of data and the 2020 index came out in March just after International Women's Day and it included data from the annual survey done by the Computing Research Association which gathers data from more than 200 universities in North America. So it is very North American data but they've shown that there were 31,000 graduates who completed a computer science degree in 2020. And that's a huge increase from 2019 and a 12% increase almost from 2019. So computer science is where it's at. Mm. And women need to be part of that because that same study showed that the percentage of new AI and computer science PhDs that are female has hardly moved percentage points in the last decade. So it's hovering around 20% and it's just sat there. So I think, you know, it, this award is great for also encouraging more women to move into the AI and computer science space. And I think everybody needs to keep talking about that until something changes. Definitely. And I think same, the same numbers reflected in Australia, um, probably about 27% is where we're at, roughly 28, 27%. Um, of women representative and I, I, it's a passion of mine and I, I say it to kids because I get invited on panels to talk to school kids and I say to them make sure you keep some STEM subjects take maths till year 12 even if you just scrape by you do not need to get a distinction this is not perfection but you need maths as a starting point keep your options open now of course you know, you can go into humanity fields and then flip to STEM, but it's quite tough. It's much easier having STEM subject. And then, then if you decide you want to flip to humanities, it's not, a, it's not a huge transition. Yes, and, you know, in my day, which I guess is showing my age, you couldn't have a degree only in one, you couldn't finish your high school certificate in only one field. So I did do maths you know, at a very high level all the way to year 12 as a lover of history and English and I also did economics and business studies. And I think that sort of multiple skill set is essential. You've got to take it um, as far as you can. But thanks to this award and some of the award money, I'm also going to do a 12-week short course at MIT in data science because I want to skill up because I think to make good decisions for the Gender Legislative Index, if I, I bring the law and I bring the international women's rights law expertise, but I want to have more data science knowledge to make informed decisions and to strengthen the ability of myself with my collaborators to exploit the GLI's potential. You're forced to be reckoned with, Ramona, and I know you've got kids. I hope, I, I hope they know. They look at you and they go, this is always the problem. I, I have to say, my 84-year-old mother has just passed away and um, it, it's actually been 2019. And I, I'm saying to my sisters, I'm the youngest of five kids, how phenomenal my mom was. She was just... 
you know, and I'm actually embarrassed when I reflect on some of the stuff I used to say to her that, you know, she should go into a care home and because she was living on her own, she was driving, she was independent. And I'm going, listen, I'm a little whippersnipper. What do I know? My mom is 84 years old. She ran a business. She's sharp as anything. And um, I'm sure your kids are looking at you like that and going, check my mom. That's my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. Um, you know, we I talk a lot about uh, women and women's leadership and gender equality. So the fact that my six-year-old can talk about international women's rights law <laughs> and not find that a tongue twister already means that that I'm getting something. Good luck to her prospective partner in life. Like, <laughs> buckle up, you're in for a ride. Well, hopefully the world then when she's older is a little different and um, yes. society is better ready. Indeed, I do agree with you. Ramona, I'm mindful of your time. It's been an absolute pleasure with you. Do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, look, you know, I suppose, you know, at least for the Australian listeners out there, I think it's an exciting moment. And I hope this change of government means that tools like the Gender Legislative Index get a, a real look into and get into the hands of female and male legislators who are keen to make Australia more gender equal. So, you know, please check out the Gender Legislative Index website, genderlawindex.org, have a play around, send me feedback and reach out if you want to get involved. That's fabulous. Speaking of reaching out, if you haven't um, not following Ramona on LinkedIn, immediately correct the error of your ways. Um, send her a follow or a connect um, invite. And where else can they reach you? Look, they can reach me at the GLI website, which has a GLI email, but also my own, or the University of Technology Sydney. Um, follow me on Twitter because I like to tweet on all things AI, women, gender equality and leadership. Um, and I look forward to hearing from you all. Excellent. We'll put all those links in the show notes. So we'll make it easy for everyone. Romana, thank you so much. It's been really a huge honor to meet you and speak with you. Thank you, Nikki. This was a pleasure. Thank you. And to our audience out there today, thank you for joining us for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I hope you have a fabulous day wherever you are in the world. Mm -hmm.